You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey, y'all. Spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley, not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. Monster House presents. I'm excited to welcome back to Monster Talk, Laura Krantz. Uh, She's a former editor and producer for NPR. She worked on Morning Edition. She's done work for Newsweek, Popular Science, and Smithsonian. And she is the host of a podcast called Wild Thing, which we've talked to her twice before. Her first season was about Bigfoot and her relationship to that animal. That's more than just an interest. And then also she talked about aliens and what's out there in the universe in season two. And now she's on to season three, uh, which is about nuclear stuff. This is really interesting to me. And and, um, I wanted to introduce the new season to you guys and talk to Laura about what's in this season so welcome to Monster Talk again, Laura Kranz. Thank you. I am excited to be back here and chatting with you. Yeah, so so this seems like a pretty big topical change for the show. Do you see a through line in, in the series? I mean, is it just stuff you're interested in? How do you position that? It's fair to say that it is stuff that I'm interested in because you can't spend a year, year and a half working on a topic if you're not interested in something. So yes, that is true. But the other through line... Uh, and I think this is, it, it's, it's a little bit harder to grasp, but it makes a lot of sense to me. It's this sort of intersection between science and society. And, you know, we hold these myths, we have these questions that we want answered, but we don't have answers for. Um, we have ideas about certain things in science and certain things like Bigfoot or aliens or nuclear energy. And we may not actually have all of the facts and we might be sort of being Uh, influenced by myths and stories that have been told over the years that might not actually be doing this topic justice. So that's sort of the the through line that I'm I'm looking at here. And, you know, maybe it's a little bit of a stretch, but honestly, like the more I started looking into the nuclear stuff, the more I realized that we have just as many myths about that as we do about something like Bigfoot. Oh, I agree. No, the funny thing was when you sent me the information about the new season, you said tentatively this may not be on target for Monster Talk. But I would say that for our audience's uh, information, the it's very on topic for me personally because you open up with this story about an, a disaster slash true crime <laughs> slash. Yeah. Like it's a really interesting story that I encountered myself organically as an oral tradition within the Navy nuclear power program. Um, Mm -hmm. So when I was in nuclear power, a school, 
they told me a version of the story of what happened in Idaho. Uh, and uh, I guess, I think, rather than me trying to tell it, why don't you, do you think you give the elevator pitch for the setup story? Yeah, for sure. So outside of Idaho Falls, which is the town where I grew up, is now what's called the Idaho National Laboratory. This was established back in the 19, late 1940s, early 1950s. And at the time, it was called the National Reactor Testing Station. And basically, this is where the government and the military um, were coming to test out different potential, no pun intended, nuclear reactor ideas um, for both military and civilian use. And in 1961, the deadliest nuclear reactor accident in American history happened. A reactor blew up, it killed three men, left a very you know radioactive footprint behind and is still to this day the the worst nuclear reactor accident in history and so that is the start of the story i had not despite growing up right near this i had not heard about it um i didn't learn about it until i was an adult and actually a lot of people don't know about it i would say the population that probably knows the most probably your group of people the navy nukes um, who probably heard this story, you know, over the years in working in that environment. Um, and in fact, one of the best books that's written about it is by another Navy nuke uh, by the name of Todd Tucker, who wrote a book called Atomic America. Um, so I would recommend that if you're looking for a good read about Admiral Hyman Rickover and the foundation of the nuclear Navy. Neat. But, yeah. Yeah, it's really good. Um, but back to the point, you know, I hadn't heard about this story until I was an adult. And I was like, wow, this is kind of crazy that three men died. If something like this had, ha had happened, I don't know, maybe 20 years later, um, I can't imagine what the reaction might have been. Because you think about what happened with Three Mile Island, which was scary, but nobody actually died in that. And we still consider that to be, you know one of the worst nuclear experiences in American history. So I just, I kind of wondered about the timing of it, why this was acceptable at the time and might not be later. Yeah. And then also, you know, here we are, yeah, here we are 60 years later and nuclear energy is sort of having a bit of a renaissance as we try to figure out how to deal with climate change, as we try to figure out how to have more clean energy because energy demands are growing up, are going up. And the town I grew up in, Idaho Falls, is considering for the first time getting power from one of these new generation of nuclear reactors that's coming online towards the end of the, the decade uh, by a company called NuScale. And so I kind of wondered, you know, here we are. It's been 60 years. These two events kind of bookend things. I'm sure the technology is better, but are we as humans better at operating it than we were? Are we are we more responsible? Yeah. And now, so how much of the, the series do you dig in on what really happened at that accident versus the, um, sort of the nature of the field at this point? Yeah. So it's kind of a mix, but um, I, I, I use this event of what happened in 1961 as the touchstone to kind of go back to over and over and over again. Yeah. So people will get the full details of the accident. There, after it happened, there were a lot of rumors about what might have gone on. Was it deliberate sabotage? Was it, you know, a chemical imbalance somewhere that like screwed things up? Um, was it murder? <laughs> was it murder most foul? Um, there were rumors of a love triangle that one guy was sleeping with another guy's wife. Yeah, that was the legend and, I heard. I, I, I've yeah. become, I've become very dubious of the whole thing. But yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. And then, of course, there's suspicious. The, uh, suspicious is probably the yeah. better word. I think, I think the claim is dubious. I'm suspicious. There we go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm not going to give away what, you know, the findings. No, were, no, no, but... no, no, no. The, <laughs> I didn't, you know, I deliberately didn't look when, um, when I was researching for this chat, because I uh-huh. thought I'm going to let you f- tell me, I'm going to listen to the show and find out my, you know, that way. Yeah. Well, good. I'm yeah. glad to hear that. <laughs> yeah. It, it, it is intriguing though, because as you say, there's been tremendous developments in the technology. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the same time, we have uh, a, a strong history of people being afraid of nuclear power and you know there have been some really dumb mistakes in the nuclear world that seem right there's been some really bad designs um when you think about things like fail safe and i don't mean the movie i mean the idea that when a reactor fails it would always fail into a safe mode right that yeah. wasn't always the case <laughs> it's just like really no you'd make a reactor that it doesn't fail into a safe you know you know whatever but but that's how the world has been and you you know as a fan of innovation and technology, oftentimes you have to go through bad designs to get to the good ones. And unfortunately, with atomic power, um, if a mistake happens, the, the the sort of the footprint of the disaster can be not only large but lengthy in, in time. Um, right. The stuff, exactly. The stuff has a long historical footprint. Um, so, yeah. So, so who, what kind of people will you be talking to during the series? So I talked to all kinds of people. I spent you know, several days out at the Idaho National Laboratory. They were very nice to, you know, during COVID. This has been a little tough to report during COVID simply because, you know, a lot of places were shut down. But I managed to get there last summer. At the end of last summer, they opened up basically just so I could go and, like, interview some people um, or opened up to the public. So spend some time at the lab talking to nuclear scientists. Um, I talked to um, now um, former Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid, who we heard from in the second series, uh, the second um, season of Wild Thing, he has passed away. But I had knew I knew I was interested in doing this topic, so I actually talked to him at the same time um, that I did for the UFO A Tip stuff. I talked oh. to him about this as well. So well played. Um, yeah, I was like, well, I know he's not well, so let's just two birds, one stone. Um, I speak to some Native Americans who have some fairly strong opinions about the nuclear program, especially the historical stuff. Uh, I speak with a lot of historians of the Cold War. Uh, Richard Rhodes, who wrote a Pulitzer Prize winning book called The Making of the Atomic Bomb, he spent some time talking to me. And then, of course, I had to talk to someone who could actually explain the science to me because my background is in history. And I managed to dodge chemistry entirely and barely took physics. So I had to have a real crash course here in how nuclear physics works. You know, what is an atom? How do we split it open? How did we figure out there was all that energy in there? So, you know, some basic questions, but I think it was actually, it was a really useful and kind of fun exercise trying to figure this kind of stuff out. Yeah. I mean, it it was really interesting to me, even though it wasn't really what I wanted to do in the Navy. Um, Mm-hmm. I, and and my, I think my ambivalence came out in a school. I my grades were real iffy, and they they washed me out and turned me into a security guard. Uh, 
<laughs> I, I didn't fail, but I wasn't really doing well, and they just decided I should go do something else, which is fine. I had, in fact, I I, I I don't really have any regrets, and I ended up on the ship. I was still a machinist mate by classification, so I still ended up working right next to the reactor. All my friends were in the nuclear program, so I mean, you know, that that's all right. But I really wanted to be a journalist, so <laughs> I spent all my and time. Let you. No, they they you did. Journalists for like Stars and Stripes. Well, I did. Uh, I did some articles, uh, not for Stars and Stripes, but for the local, uh, like the ship's paper, the ship's TV station, yeah. and then uh, some. One of my articles made it into the uh, Virginia Beach uh, newspaper, and nice. uh, so I mean, you know, I mean, it was fun, and yeah. I, it gave me a lot of opportunity to work on. Uh, audio editing, uh, which turned out to be handy just a few decades later. (laughs) (laughs) Funny how that works. Yeah. So, I mean, I felt, I mean, when, when podcasting came along, I was very, very comfortable with every aspect of it because I'm an IT guy with a little bit of journalism background and a lot of writing. So yeah, no, this stuff was right up my alley, but, but the Navy, uh, you know, was a really great experience for me and Mm -hmm. you just, it's, when you're on an aircraft carrier, you're on a nuclear reactor. Or if you're on the Enterprise, right. you're on eight. <laughs> right. And you guys, like, you know, you were living around it. You were exposed to it all the time. Like, what I would imagine it wasn't something that worried you. You no, trusted that side. Exactly. So I, I feel like I'm probably a little bit biased because, well, the Navy ran it really well, you know. and, and, and They and, still do. And, and I don't – I never felt in danger. And there was always electricity when I needed it. So – Right. <laughs> but yeah. that so that bias aside, I'm really curious to see where you come down after all that. You know, I don't want you to spoil it, but I do want to I like did you have a narrative in mind when you started the series or did you just sort of like follow the questions and see where it turned out? It was kind of following the questions and see where it turned out. I mean, I had I really was back and forth on this. Is nuclear energy a good idea? Is it not a good idea? Can we do it safely? Can we not do it safely? And I feel I still think I waver um, a little bit, not because I don't think that the science is good, but more because I don't necessarily trust human nature. And to be honest, the stuff that was going on in the Ukraine and with Russia, you know, setting up camp in Chernobyl Mm -hmm. and targeting that other Ukrainian nuclear power plant, like those are things I don't think we anticipated when we were building these kinds of structures. Right. And it it makes you wonder, (laughs) it it goes to that question of like, how responsible are we? Like, if this is going to be a target for a war, then maybe it's not a good idea. Um, So, you know, it was just, it's, it's been a lot of back and forth. And I think there are a lot of unanswered questions too about, you know, what do we do with the waste? How do we figure out that problem? What are the effects on health? Like we have some ideas, but we still don't have really solid concrete answers about that. And it probably depends on a person to person basis. Um, you know, do, uh, are the risks worth the rewards? So I, I think there are a lot of interesting questions in here. And there's also a lot of myths that we sort of tell ourselves in terms of, you know, I think a lot of people are familiar with the stories of Chernobyl and Fukushima and Three Mile Island. These are these big stories about the failures, but we don't talk as much about the successes, which is the stuff you don't ever hear about, which is functioning nuclear reactors. Yeah. Um, and at the same time, when those mistakes happen, um, we are often ready to just condemn the entire program rather than looking at sort of like why they happened and how we can fix the whole thing. Um, yeah. And 
Yeah. And likewise, when it happened in 1961, I think people may have been too far in the opposite direction where they were happier to use this story of an affair and a love triangle and a murder-suicide and some unstable men as the scapegoat for what had gone wrong rather than looking at what was actually wrong with the reactor program. So there's always these stories we tell ourselves about how this stuff works rather than sort of face up to the facts and the reality of it. Yeah, and I think maybe in 61, you know, it, this is pre-Watergate and a lot of people were yeah. still still coming out of that sort of 1950s exuberance after the war, you know, trust your government. Mm -hmm. um, that's, uh, that's dead. That's gone. I don't, <laughs> I think, oh, we're, yeah, we're, we seem to be in a kind of a trough uh, with our confidence in government. And, you know, I, I think that's sad. Um, I wish we had politicians who sort of engendered that kind of confidence again, uh, it, or yeah. that it was well-placed, but, uh, you know, um, skepticism and caution around believing what politicians say has, I think, historically always sure. been a worthwhile <laughs> value. <laughs> yeah, trust to verify. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But, but I mean, you, you sort of, it is like a pendulum, though, and it, it can swing too far in, in a direction. And I think right now everybody's down on uh, whether we can trust anything. And, and it's like, it's so easy to sow doubt. Doubt, I mean, and I think doubt, I mean, I'm, I'm a very skeptical person. I think doubt's a very powerful tool used appropriately, but it's also kind of a weed and it can grow in any soil. <laughs> and people right. can people can sow doubt in your most, uh, you know, sacred fields and, and, and it can really undermine the way you think. It's a challenge. But I think about the Navy. I, this, this was an Army atomic program, I believe. Yes. Okay. Yeah. But... The military has been known to fib about what actually went down in disasters. Uh, I'm thinking about the uh, USS Iowa turret explosion immediately pops uh -huh. to mind where the first thing happens, there's this explosion and immediately it's blamed the sailors, right? It's like, right. yeah, yeah. And uh, that turned out to not at all be what was going on there. But um, yeah, it's a uh, it's trust is um, trust is hard to win and it's really hard to win back. Uh, so yes, that's, uh, I, we, we, we're probably going to be dealing with this for a long time. Um, yeah. And I think the other interesting thing here is transparency is important. And I realize that, um, that can be kind of, especially back in the 1960s, like, you know, we'd only really been playing around with nuclear stuff for about 20 years at that point, 15 years. Um, I guess a little bit, yeah, probably close to 20 years. So we're, we're really, we're trying to figure out the science. So in many cases, when people ask, were asking what went wrong, they didn't always have answers to this stuff. They were still trying to puzzle it out themselves. And But rather than say, hey, you know, this technology's new, we're still figuring it out, which would also probably have made people nervous. They just sort of hedged. Uh, and then when it comes to light that they didn't know or they weren't being transparent or they didn't say what was actually going on, that's the kind of stuff that starts to create this climate of distrust. Yeah. Uh, so it's a fine line of like being transparent and being open and explaining things and, um, and you know, not giving away state secrets, but it's, it's an interesting position for the government and the military to be in. It is. And private corporations as well. And, and I think mm -hmm. it, it, it's the kind of thing where, you know, part of me, the engineering side of me says, well, if we can make a better machine, we should make a better machine. And then you have to say, well, wait a minute. 
like you're saying with the Ukraine, if you have a peaceful place and a non uh, tectonically active place, and there's no flooding coming, and like you try to like pre right determine what are all the things that could go wrong. And the sad yeah. fact is, you can never prepare for everything that can go wrong. You know, so that's that's and and the consequences have to be accounted for. Like I mean, you have to make designs that can handle all kinds of disasters, or otherwise, you you know, yeah. is it worth the risk? You know, so. Right, which then adds to the cost, which then becomes one of the things that people don't like about it. And it, you know, on and on and on and on and on. Well, <laughs> that's the other thing is uh, you put so many administrative hurdles before you can make a plant. And then, like, then it takes, you know, 20 years to build it because of all the inspections and everything else. It's like, well, okay. And then the whole time there's people protesting to stop it. it it's right. Yet, like you say, uh, global climate change kind of demands we find alternatives to fossil fuels and i yeah. you know i man atomic's got a lot of energy in it it really does yeah <laughs> it's pretty amazing how much it has in comparison with say coal or natural gas or oil like you know pound for pound um or ounce for ounce really in the mm, case mm-hmm. of nuclear well that whole um, e equals mc square thing it really yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah something about that which you know, it's embarrassing. I, you know, you've heard, I've heard that equation my entire life, but of course didn't really understand what it meant until I started working on this podcast. Oh, so. it'll, yeah. No, that's one of the first things yeah. you get in, 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 in training. Uh, yeah. You really realize, holy cow, there's a lot of energy in a, in the smallest right. of masses, right? I mean, it's just, it's <laughs> thankfully the, the forces that hold the atoms together generally keep that from all blowing apart, but it is, yeah, it's a chunk of energy. It's a really amazing yeah. thing. So um, I, I would yeah, say it's definitely fun to learn about all that stuff. Yeah, so. I, 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 I'm sure in the episode you'll or in the show you'll talk about how this stuff actually works. It's like I didn't know anything when I joined the Navy. Okay, like, I like they, I would they they had a really good blank slate with my head. <laughs> <laughs> but the whole thing about that you're using, you, you never have your atomic water touch your fresh water, right? So they use they use hot water pipes from the atomic region of the reactor to heat up fresh water, which they turn into steam to turn a turbine to move the ship or to generate electricity. And, and good golly, those turbines are efficient. They, they reuse yeah. the steam so many times. So um, it's, it's, it's very impressive. And I'm sure that the land plants are, are different in their designs. And I'm sure there's been new designs created since I was in the Navy. But the whole basic principle of it is really fascinating. And uh, yeah. I look, I look forward to hearing uh, what's new because I think you're probably going to cover a lot of things that I haven't looked into since I left the Navy. So I hope so. Yeah. Well, okay. So I want to include uh, what we're going to do is after this interview, we're going to go mm-hmm. to a clip of your show. This will be from the yep. introductory episode. But yeah. and if you like it, um, if, enjoy what you hear. How can people hear more? Okay. Well, so if you want to find the show it's it's wild thing podcast it is on pretty much every podcast platform um i i don't know of any where it's not and if you find one please do let me know because i will fix that there is a premium version 
which I am not doing the whole season right now. It will be available once the season is finished, which is in mid-July. But the premium version allows you to get each new episode a week early. And there will also be bonus episodes that are coming up at the end of the season, um, a couple more highly produced episodes, as well as some interviews with some of the really interesting people I talked to and a few other people that I didn't get to talk to but really wanted to interview. Um, so those will be available exclusively to premium subscribers. And you can find out more about that at wildthingpodcast.com. And then, of course, you know, I'm on social media and you can find everything there. Uh, the handle for Facebook, Twitter and Instagram is at wildthingpod. I think that was all the questions you asked me. Yeah, I think so. That's fantastic. Well, Laura, yeah. I, I hope that our listeners enjoy what you've produced. And I look forward to hearing the rest of it myself. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, thanks for joining me. And uh, thanks for thinking of us. I know this is a little off topic for monsters, but it's totally on topic for me personally. So, <laughs> <laughs> Good. Well, I'm glad I found that that, that narrow little niche. Yeah. <laughs> It's both. Anyway, I think I think uh, a lot of our listeners enjoy science, and uh, in this yeah. this kind of topic is it's got interesting, it's got mystery and intrigue, and science and technology and politics. It's got a lot. There's a lot yeah. to cover here, and it's like yeah. big questions about yeah. you know humanity and like how we interact with this stuff and human nature. You know, the thing that sort of, sort of kept coming back to me was that. The most unstable element in all of this is probably the humans, not so much the uranium. Right, right. Well, and also you covered the entire universe in your last series, so we need to yeah, get. Right? You, you have know? to get small now, right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So in, into yeah. the atom. Yeah, I mean, think of this as a one-on-one course. There's a lot more information out there that people can go and find, but I'm hoping it'll pique their interest, and you know, maybe some of those people that also skipped out on chemistry and physics will find that they find it a little more interesting than they originally thought they did. I bet they will. Well, again, thank you so much for coming back and talking with us, and uh, good yeah, luck on the new season. It's exciting. Thank you. Thanks very much. What follows is an introductory clip to Wild Thing Season 3. If you enjoy it, check out the show notes for links to subscribe. The alarm bells went off at 9.01 p.m. Deep in the Idaho desert, the men sitting inside the warmth of fire station number one no doubt rolled their eyes. The alert came from a small nuclear test reactor known as SL-1. It sat isolated, eight miles down the road, and this would be the firefighters' third trip there today. Twice already, they had responded to false alarms from a faulty fire detector at the small reactor. Now it was dark and bitterly cold, below zero, on this frigid January night. So the idea of suiting up just to go reset the fire alarm was not very appealing. But that was a job, and off they went, anticipating a quick trip. Nine minutes later, the firemen arrived at the gate. It was locked. And normally, one of the three men working at the SL-1 reactor would buzz them in. But no one answered the phone. This was the first clue that something was off. The next one came when they got inside and saw a warning light blinking on the control panel of the reactor, but couldn't find any of the men who were supposed to be working. They saw three coats, three lunch boxes. They checked the log, three people working, but nobody was in the office area. And so they started going up the stairway, the access to the reactor itself, uh, an enclosed stairway on the outside of the silo. And that's when their meters started going up. They're Geiger counters. 
The readings on the firefighters' radiation detectors redlined, suggesting dangerously high levels of radiation. So high that they thought their equipment was broken. They went back down and grabbed another device from their truck and headed back up the stairs to the reactor room. And again, the detector maxed out when they were only halfway up, which meant something had gone horribly wrong with the reactor. The firefighters raced up the rest of the stairs and peered through the window of the reactor room door to see twisted metal and debris all covered in water that had once been cooling the reactor's core. They couldn't go in. The radiation levels were through the roof. But they did see that out of the three men, they saw one body, one obviously dead, and one that was still alive, still breathing. Two men accounted for, but they didn't see the third man and they couldn't take the time to look, either. They'd already been exposed to too much radiation, and the damaged reactor was spewing out more. They hurried back down the stairs to come up with a rescue plan and discovered that a growing crowd had assembled outside the building. Health physicists and nurses, government officials and military men. When there's a problem at a nuclear reactor, the news travels fast. Everyone wanted to know what had happened, But the first order of business was to rescue the man the firefighters had seen breathing inside the lethally radioactive reactor room. It meant loading the injured man onto a stretcher, hauling him down the stairs, and getting him into a makeshift ambulance, all without getting overexposed to dangerous radioactive particles. Two of the rescuers' respirators failed, forcing them to breathe in the contaminated air. But they managed to get the man outside. So they were waiting for the doctor to determine how do we treat the patient, and while waiting, he did die. Flying concrete and steel do a hell of a lot of damage. If not hit by the debris, it would not have been pleasant for him. I'd guess only a couple days before he would have died from radiation exposure. The responders also managed to recover the second man's body. But the third man remained missing. That is, until someone looked up. One of them was impaled to the ceiling with a control rod that was ejected from the core. Um, And it spread radiation everywhere, destroyed the plant, um, and pretty much destroyed the Army's nuclear power program along with it. In a matter of seconds, a quiet, cold January night became radioactively hot. It forced us to reconsider our plans for an atomic future and reckon with some of the questions we might have preferred to ignore. I'm Laura Krantz. Welcome to the third season of Wild Thing, Going Nuclear, a series about the power of the universe contained in the tiny little package of the atom. You and I are living in the atomic age. The endless debate over harnessing that power. The mysteries of the universe. And whether we humans are responsible enough to mess with it. Of benefit or of destruction. Of good or of evil. The SL-1 nuclear reactor meltdown took place in 1961 at the National Reactor Testing Station, the NRTS, in the harsh, high desert of Idaho, just 45 miles west of the town of Idaho Falls, where I grew up. All of this happened years before I was born. My father was a sophomore at Idaho Falls High School at the time, and Jim Francis, who later became my favorite high school history teacher and a member of the Idaho Falls City Council, was himself a freshman and his father worked at the NRTS. He was there in 61, and I don't know if he was one of the ones that was 
got all dressed up and was in for a few seconds and then had to get out. But he was definitely part of the people on the scene at that time. It was the first and one of the deadliest nuclear incidents in U.S. history. And yet I didn't learn about it until I was an adult. In fact, most of the people I grew up with hadn't heard about it either. You'd think that an event like that would have had a lasting effect, given that it happened just down the road and three men died. But in truth, their deaths came at a time when the U.S. was pursuing technology, which was seen as the key to a better future. And for the citizens of the nearby towns, including Idaho Falls, the risks associated with that technology seemed acceptable. So the deaths of those three men may have been seen as tragic, but for the greater good. And I think that was very much a prevailing view of a lot of the people who lived in southeast Idaho. Susan Stacy is a historian in Boise, Idaho, and the author of Proving the Principle, a history of the Idaho National Engineering and Environmental Laboratory, 1949 to 1999. The site was isolated in the desert for a reason. Accidents were a possibility, and how tragic, but it's part of progress. And so the story of SL1 kind of faded away. It certainly doesn't have the same name recognition as Three Mile Island, Chernobyl, or Fukushima. I really don't know that I would have thought much more about it if it weren't for the fact that now, 60 years later, my hometown, Idaho Falls, is exploring the possibility of using nuclear power. In fact, a lot of places across the nation are. And it made me wonder how far we've come. No doubt our technology has improved. But are we more responsible when it comes to wielding it? This has been a Monster House presentation.